everybody sees nature as this sort of sort of wild you've got to go to the woods or you've got to go into the national parks but in reality the grimier the place the better the wildlife i've always found hi i'm holly and welcome to my podcast through the trees where i talk to my guests about a whole range of nature-based subjects today i'm talking to kane scrimger naturalist and wildlife filmmaker about the importance of nature documentaries and why the kittawakes in north shields need protecting i hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for tuning in Oh, I left my cup of tea in the kitchen. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Kane. Thank you for joining me. I would first like to ask you, what is your favourite tree and why? That's a really interesting question. No, I do. Yeah, I think because it's, it's interesting because it depends where you are as well. But I think that when if I have a good think that I like, I like elder trees. Okay. Because they like remind me of like summer and the youth and the really good sort of purposeful tree as well. Like not like any tree is not purposeful, no. but you can do a lot with them. The you don't see very many of them in our hedgerows anymore. And when you get in these hedgerow packs, they're never sort of featured. And they are native, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah. So you get them jelly fungus growing on them, and they've got that hollow pithy center, and you get the flowers off them and the berries off them. They're just, and they've got a smell as well, like a, like a pungent smell. So you can smell them in the hedgerow. So I think I do like elders, yeah. Okay, I'll keep an eye out for one on my next walk and I'll let you know if I see one. <laughs> that would be great, yeah. I will. I'll send you a photo. <laughs> so we know each other from uni. We both went to the University yeah. of Cumbria. And um, what made you choose the, uh, the course that we did? Um, I think I was really interested in wildlife, um, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Um, I just knew I wanted to work in the wildlife sector. Um, but I did a lot of sort of photography already and I had a blog and a bit of a website. Um, and I quite enjoyed doing that. And on the other side of it, I wasn't massively academic. So I toyed with going to do zoology and things like that. And I thought, I don't think I can quite cut this. <laughs> Um, so I'm more of a creative person. That's exactly the same as me. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Just when I'd seen it on the website, it sort of screamed out, that sounds practical. There's a lot of practical words in there. I can just go and take pictures. Exactly, yeah. Wildlife and media <laughs> is a really good title, whereas animal zoology or biology or something is just, yeah, not quite, not quite fast. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, too much tests, too many books, not enough time outside, I think. <laughs> and did you find that the course that you were able to um, learn as you go, uh, just try it out and um, learn everything, hiring the camera out from the guys um, and then just going out and shooting? Yeah, so I think it, I think it really put me on the sort of right path to think I could actually do this as a job because I'd, I'd taken photographs, but I'd never filmed any before and it it didn't really come into mind that I could do films. I think we were in the generation where videos on phones were just sort of coming out. It makes us sound really old, that doesn't it? But we didn't have access to sort of video cameras as such. Um, and then when I, once I started doing it, I did enjoy it and found that I had, had sort of that natural eye to do it. Um, and I just sort of progressed from there, really. Yeah, I think I was, yeah, exactly the same. And then you realise that there's a whole new world of, of filming yeah. and that there are so many different like stories that you can tell and ways to tell it instead of just th with that one image which Definitely. which I found really really appealing because I just love to tell different stories so your early wildlife experiences was there something that kind of happened or was it just your upbringing that made you really love nature 
It was a bit of both. So I remember going out with my dad and granddad to sort of watch birds and they were just sort of countryside people. Um, but I was always sort of fascinated by sort of bird's eggs. My dad had these old bird's egg books and, but I started exploring. So I used to go, we were right on the edge of what was then green belt land. So I had a few bits of places where houses hadn't been built that I could play in. Um, and then as I got older, I explored further afield and I seen a great crested grebe on this pond, it's called Hollywell Pond, um, and it had a public hide and a private hide. And I used to go on the public hide and then I used to go to the private hide and I didn't quite know how to get in, it was always locked. So I used to knock on the door every time I went. And one day somebody did let me in. Many a times I went and somebody was inside and they never let me in. But one day <laughs> this man um, let me in and um, he was called Sid and he was a local bird watcher and he had his telescope set up on the Great Crested Grebe nest. And I remember peering through that and thinking, how can something so beautiful and so different be so close to my house? And I didn't know it existed. And it sort of made that spark, that moment where I thought, what else was there? What was I missing? What else can I find? And I think from that moment, it's just been my life, really. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And it's probably, there are probably a lot of like RSPB reserves within a short distance to a lot of different people and they probably don't know that they're there definitely yes i've I've been doing some projects with cumbria wildlife trust recently and they told me that there's a cumbria wildlife trust reserve within 10 miles of everybody in cumbria which if you think how sparsely populated it is it's it's amazing to think that there's so many nature reserves so close especially at times like these where people can't travel so far if they know that they're um, is something like that so close then it would be within their local distance or however far we're allowed to travel at current times and um, yeah. and I just think yeah then everyone can go out for their short walk or their their um, just to go and check yeah. see what birds are out there or what wildlife or even if it's the mallard or the swan you know they might not be able to identify everything but still being Definitely. surrounded by them I think would be yeah really good experience for everyone to go and try no matter what season <laughs> definitely yeah and i think that's everybody sees nature as this sort of sort of wild you've got to go to the woods so you've got to go into the national parks but in reality the grimier the place the better the wildlife i've always found so even in our urban city centers and everything like that the, the wildlife's always better and actually brownfield sites are everyone thinks oh brownfield sites are a dump but actually they're probably higher in biodiversity than a greenfield site. Definitely, yeah, definitely. They're not to be put, put your nose up at. They're definitely not. And so you're doing a lot of filmmaking at the moment. You're doing a lot of wildlife filmmaking at the moment. What sort of project has been your favourite, if you can choose one? Um, so I've been quite busy with the sort of working with NGOs, largely Cumbria Wildlife Trust, Vincent Wildlife Trust and a few other people this year. But um, I've also been filming in Kielder for a new TV series um, and we live right on the edge of Kielder Forest now. So through lockdown, it was quite a nice thing because I got to go out to work just down the road and film in the forest um, with nobody around. That's amazing. <laughs> um, but seeing, filming things like dippers growing up in red squirrels. Uh, the wild goats and the ospreys during the summer um which was quite nice to do oh amazing um but other than that working locally so in the cumbria wildlife trust just getting to places that you live in a place but you don't actually go to some of these places and when you get these filming jobs they seem to take you in different directions and meeting different people in different areas so it's been really nice doing that yeah i know what you mean i was um recently down in cornwall and devon earlier this year 
between the two lockdowns and um and there were some places that I would never have been before because I was doing filming some walks, some accessible walks, so they're all style free. So I was with la- a lady called Debbie, and she yeah. is in a wheelchair, and we're going to all these amazing places which I might not have gone, but we yeah. just yeah, you do take it for granted what is either on your doorstep or what's easily accessible. We always take things for granted, whether it's right on our doorstep or five minutes down the road. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's the sort of it's been a terrible time, but that's been the beauty of these sort of lockdowns is forcing us to understand and look at our local environments because that's all we've got at the minute. Absolutely. Um and I think that the media plays a big part in raising awareness of um of the wildlife and the natural spaces around us how do you think that they the media can help to kind of get people involved or get people outdoors more i think because we we've all come from that sort of david attenborough big culture haven't we that we've seen these documentaries and uh, on tv and it's interesting speaking to people who aren't necessarily into wildlife but still watch sort of these big blue chip documentaries and as we've seen with the plastics it's huge but I think it's we've got to look at the sort of local action of the films as well, whether they were making films for one particular person or one particular community to make that difference. Because within the TV world, it still feels a little bit disjointed. People watch these things and they might not link it up. They need sort of local personal action. And that's where these smaller scale, smaller, more important issues in, within the films come out. So like I said, if you're making a film for one person, one counsellor, or one local community about with an issue. I think that's probably more powerful than this. Um, sometimes what we see on the TV, which costs millions of pounds. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, especially with the younger generation, you know, we're not that old, but especially with, say, children, um, I always think that a child has to have direct contact with nature to definitely, enable them definitely. to like care about it as an adult. And... Being a wildlife and media student back then, my whole project, you know, our dissertation was to make a film about wildlife and media, but I actually chose, like, the impact of nature on a child's life. So I brought in... Children aren't, you know, animals in that sense, but I just (laughs) thought it's really important to bring that in. Um, And I think it is something that could possibly be pushed a lot more in these different documentaries and something that people can bring home you know the child might know about the amazon rainforest but they don't know about the oak tree down the road and that and how that is important and it's equally as important as knowing about the rainforest if not more important for that connection like you say um because i think that's it isn't it you can everybody watches the tv don't they? it's escapism Mm -hmm. isn't it so it's it's really hard to smash that boundary i think it's nice to see that the big blue chip things now canvas all social media don't they you see them doing a lot more than just producing it but again i think it is it has to be direct contact you need to show them kids that oak tree they need to go and touch it they need to go and feel it and without that it still might struggle to get through that digital especially the way we're all sucked into this digital world yeah well even um sir david attenborough went on to instagram recently you probably saw he was the quickest person to <laughs> yeah. reach a million or two million view uh followers <laughs> i think he yeah. got it within four hours or something um which i know says that he's now <laughs> off it um but i think it's a yeah. great pr thing to do to engage because all the young people my little brother is on all the different um apps and things and you yeah, know yeah. i think whoever came up with that idea 
to put him on there, I think it was perfect because it found a new audience, really. Definitely, yeah, definitely. And it, like, it might just take that one little thing for it. It might start us on our journeys and other people. But I think it needs to quickly follow up with that direct action, like exactly. you said. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, in this new year, we'll be able to see more of that coming or even be part of making that happen. So I hope so. Yeah, that would be brilliant. <laughs> um, so this year, new year, 2021, and you've got a new project with your wildlife hide. Can you tell me a little bit about what made you want to make the hide about your uh, company wild intrigue what started all of that uh, so yeah so wild intrigue is a sort of small ecotourism um enterprise i guess we're going to sh- shortly become a community interest company and um, but it was set up by my partner heather um, and she used to work in the ecology sector um, and it's one of them jobs just like us we want to be cameramen or producers um, conservationists, a lot of them want to go in the ecology sector and what she found was that she was sort of destroying wildlife more than that she was protecting it and just like we've mm-hmm. been talking about here she wanted to make real difference and that was to get in touch with kids so get involved with kids and she set up sort of school groups the wildcat warriors and wild intrigue sort of been on a progressional journey since then we used to take students out on expeditions and field trips to teach them ecology skills and wildlife media skills and um, but now we do these sort of mini expeds and we're trying to get just everyday people out into nature because what we found was when we're working and doing these events and doing these expeditions, a lot of the people come and already had an interest in nature, which isn't a bad thing, but it wasn't connecting with people who didn't have an interest. So we started doing these mini expeds to engage just everybody and the way we found was to link it with popular culture and food. Okay. So the first one was a bats and pizza nights. I saw, yes, I did see it on Instagram. Amazing. So people come along and make their own pizzas and then we go on a bat safari. And it, the way it works is it's a communal, well, it wasn't communal activity. It still is sort of, we've just got to do social distancing and government guidelines and all that. But it's a communal activity where families can come away from the TV for a night and make the pizzas. And then they go on a bat safari at the end. And this is sometimes the first time the kids have seen bats, the adults have seen bats. And it's just absolutely amazing. You can see them spark moments happening. And that's exactly what we want. Um, but we do all sorts of different things. Like kickwakes and donuts. Amazing. Uh, we do normal bat safaris, but in different places. So like in Newcastle City Centre. Um, so we're just trying to engage people who weren't necessarily... Maybe they have watched David Attenborough or maybe they have seen something, but... They don't know how to get into it and they want they won't go to sort of straight wildlife events and um, they want something that's slightly different and that's the way we're trying to pull them in um but the wildlife hide uh, we work with a lot of landowners and partners to get things on so farms with this regeneration process going now um, and rewilding i would say the word <laughs> <laughs> the wildlife hides um uh, from rspb horsewater so it's based at rspb horsewater and they're still a sort of farm nature reserve, so it's still they've still got livestock. It's a large area, yeah. um, but they're looking at diversifying from the farm model. Um, so the woodland wildlife hide there is going to be it's part of the diversification project to get a nature based economy at the site, not just farming. Um, and we've set it up in this lovely position in Nadal Forest, um, and its main interest species is red squirrels. Um, but you also get the woodland birds there and this is for predominantly photographers to come and photograph the species 
um, photograph the red squirrels, get professional quality shots, but also for people to come and watch. Um, and the idea is that, that through that process, we'll put some education in as well, and they'll also be contributing to the conservation of RSPB horsewater. Um, so it's slightly different tangent to our other wild intrigue stuff, but along the same sort of principles. Oh, that sounds really cool. I'll have to come up and um, and have a sit down and I'll bring my, bring my camera when I'm next yeah. to Lauti. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Definitely. Yeah, the, I've been there the, today to top the feeders up and it was just a winter woodland, really. What did you see? Well, the red squirrels are always, we'll get up to six red squirrels. Um, I haven't ID'd them individually yet. I've got a few that I've picked up. Um, but there's six at once I've seen, but there's those four woodpeckers in today, stock doves, great tit, blue tit, um, all sorts of other species, no touch. Um, but it was just stunning there today. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, I love a nut hatch. They're so beautiful. They are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier you mentioned the kittiwake. Uh, you've got a petition at the moment uh, to protect the North Shields kittiwake. Can you tell us a little bit about that? People might not know what a kittiwake is and why they need protecting. Yeah, so in Newcastle, um, we have the world's most inland kittiwake colony. And a kittiwake is, I'm going to say it is a seagull. So it's a gull species, um, but it spends its entire winter at sea. So in the North North Sea and the Atlantic, it doesn't come to land. It spends its entire winter there. And then in late sort of late February, early March, the return to the breeding colonies. Now, everywhere else in the UK, they're nesting predominantly on cliffs, um, and these all buildings right on the coast. The Newcastle birds nest 17 kilometres inland, um, but they started that journey from a larger colony at the coast and sort of hopscotched the way in as the industrial nature of the time, sort of the buildings got demolished. And now you can find them right on the Tyne Bridge, on the Newcastle quayside and on the Gateshead quayside. But the North Shields colony that um, the petition is, so the petition was set up by Dan Turner, who's a local ornithologist who's been studying the birds for 27 years. Wow. But his predecessor, John Coulson, discovered the birds, I think it was in 1949, and they were nesting on okay. this building in uh, North Shields, and that was the original colony. So they've been there for 72 years. At the peak, there was about 200 pairs there, but because of redevelopment, they've lost a lot of them nest sites. So these 13 mm -hmm. pairs are the last colony of that original that original kittyway expansion, really. And they're nesting on mm -hmm. top of a dormer window. Um, and unfortunately, they've got wildlife and countryside protection, but they don't have any protection when they're not there. So during the winter months, um, it's been netted, which is quite a common thing on the time colonies, unfortunately. Yeah. So it means that when these birds come back in late February, they literally have nowhere to nest. And also the netting's not being installed correctly, so they might attempt to nest on top and then get caught up in it. But it's just, mm. they're just such fascinating birds that they are completely pelagic, spending their time at the winter at sea. They're only in the urban developments for a short period of time, but they'd completely change it if, to a seabird sort of mecca like the Farne Islands or anywhere else, but within the city. And it'll be such a mm. shame to lose even 13 pairs within that urban environment no matter what animal it is it's it's life is equally as important so what can what do you want to happen how do you want your petition to work so dan's working way to try and get that net removed and it's a sort of it's an interesting situation on the time because yes they do cause a mess this that you can't smell them they do they are quite noisy birds but <laughs> 
a lot of conservationists want to build sort of artificial structures to keep to put them on but yeah. there's a few of them on the tyne already and they don't actually use them okay. but i think they should be allowed to stay where they've set up colonies where they are now i think there shouldn't be any more netting no more deterrence because it's part of sort of the cultural heritage of the area now so 72 years is pretty much almost a human lifespan isn't it yeah of course um and i think we've got to look at them as being heritage rather than just a goal that we can move on um, and i guess that's what we're trying to do they um they need you as their pr agent to to um to help them <laughs> definitely that's what we've been trying to do with our kitty wake and donut walks um, again, pop culture, food with a local artisan baker, but people just see them as another goal. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen people trying to feed them bread, but they don't do any of that. They don't even feed in the river. They'll fly all the way out to sea to feed on sort of fish and um, crustaceans and things like that to bring back in. They're not anything like a heron gull that's going to steal your fish and chips. And I think it's that, that sort of that barrier that needs to be broken as well. Yeah, that misrepresentation of what they are thought to be. Completely. I had another chat with um, a friend yesterday um, who I'm also doing a podcast episode with and we were talking about snakes and the misrepresentation of snakes. And there are so many animals in this world which people just don't understand. Yeah. So that's why I'm so passionate about doing projects like this, talking to different people and saying, look, these kiddiewakes, they're not going to, like you say, steal your fish and chips. Yeah. Let's help them out. They need a bit of a helping hand. We've buggered their habitat anyway so yeah. the least we can do is take the netting down and let them just crack on that's it exactly <laughs> though but it's it the time colony um everywhere else in the uk kitty wakes are declining mm. um because of the thing because of climate change the food source change but also because of more spring storms oh, okay but within newcastle and gateshead's population it's actually increasing um and i think that's because in the microclimate of the city they're still heading out to get the food sources, but the microclimate of the city doesn't really have storms to wash the nest off the mm. cliffs. So it's becoming a sort of really, really important place for kittiwakes and the breeding success. Mm. So who are we to say to put netting up just because they cause a little bit of disturbance for like four months in the year? Exactly. Exactly. No, I agree with you there. I think if I had the money, I would just buy their flat. <laughs> 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 everyone team up together and buy it for yeah. them <laughs> yeah oh, that would be yeah the ideal situation obviously <laughs> do you ever go out walking without your camera uh yes uh, uh to be honest i've got this sort of love hate relationship with cameras and filmmaking and photography because I, I love doing it <laughs> but sometimes it feels like work and sometimes it prevents experiences happening really um so I'm really bad for not taking my camera places. <laughs> I'll take it for working and as a tool, like a joiner takes his hammer, but I like to watch. So I like to go and watch wildlife with binoculars and telescopes um, rather than actually photographing it all the time. And you always see the best things when you haven't got your camera. And initially as a wildlife photographer... <laughs> I know, it's so annoying. <laughs> it is, yeah. But that's the thing. It is so annoying, but I think once you get used to knowing that and like you learn that it's sort of the experience that you're trying to capture rather than the photograph, then you sort of slowly, slowly get over it. But every time it's like swear words or... <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly the same. If Mike says, should we go out for a walk? Do you want to bring your camera? It's a nice afternoon. I'm just like, no, I don't want to look at it. And then the last week I saw this beautiful stag in the woods. The light was perfect. The trees were there. And I was just like... <gasps> 
just absorb it just take it in it's my memory no one else can have this <laughs> <laughs> definitely that's exactly what you've got to do though you've got to absorb it <laughs> so absorbing things is there a book that you would recommend anyone who wants to absorb new information about cumbrian wildlife or birds or something that you think oh yeah this is a really good read um, I think it's probably a bit of a heavy hitting one, but um, James Rebanks is a famous Cumbrian farmer. Um, we go down to his farm quite a lot to do so sort of ecological surveys and events, but he's got his book English Pastoral. And I think just like there's a disconnect with nature, there's been such a disconnect with what a farmer does. Um, and that's influenced our environment massively. So we a lot of us shop at supermarkets and just get the quick fix. Um, but reading James's book really puts in perspective that We've got this ingrown thing to not like farmers and to say that they've destroyed the environment. But in reality, it's been the society and the system that's caused that. Um, so it's probably a bit of a heavy hit. It's not a heavy hit and read, um, but I definitely recommend English Pastoral by James Rebanks in the Cumbrian context, as well as the rest of the country, really. Brilliant. That sounds amazing. I'm currently reading In the Furrow, um, which oh, is all right. about ploughing in Suffolk um, about 150 years ago. And I think that it's, again, really interesting because the farmers, they, would, they wouldn't they would plough or they wouldn't sow seeds in a certain direction when the wind was blowing from the yeah. east because it would mess everything up and they yeah. had a real respect for the land. Um, yeah. So I will take... I will um, take a look at your book. I think that would be yeah, really good, a really good read. <laughs> How can people find you and Wild Intrigue on social media? So Wild Intrigue's on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And that's just at Wild Intrigue everywhere. Um, I've cut my social media right down. So the only place you'll find me is on Instagram. So that's at Kane Scrimger. But most stuff gets posted on Wild Intrigue anyway. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It was really good to catch up. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ali. At the end of every episode, I share a quote which I feel sums up everything we've been talking about. And my quote today is from no one other than Sir David Attenborough. It seems to me that the natural world is the greatest source of excitement, the greatest source of visual beauty, the greatest source of intellectual interest. It is the greatest source of so much life that makes life worth living. <laughs>